it's good to be with you guys this morning. And uh, yep, you guys can go. They're so cute, aren't they? I forgot to I forgot to let them go. Um, we're gonna we're gonna continue our series uh, secret uh, unlocking the secrets of the Christian life. And uh, if you want to open your Bibles, I encourage you to do that. We'll be in Second Peter chapter one again, and we'll be th- be there and other places uh, throughout the series. Uh, so so encourage you to do that. Um, it's, uh, it's always interesting to talk to people about Christianity outside of the Christian faith. And, I, and if, you don't, if you don't do this, by the way, I mean, you're missing out. And I'm not even necessarily talking about sharing the gospel. I'm, I'm just talking about having conversations about spiritual things and, and, and those things that are beyond this, this world and hearing the perspectives of, of people um, outside of the Christian faith, faith. And of course, when the opportunity presents itself, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, that people desperately need that good news. Um, but it, it's interesting often to hear the perspectives that other people have of Christianity, of faith, and what, that, what that's all about. And I, I've quoted this, this is an atheist that I've quoted before, and I'll, I'm going to quote him again this morning, but he, he wrote a book called A Manual for Creating Atheists. It's like the evangelism how-to book for atheists. Um, and he says this, to create a generation of street epistemologists, that's people who in his mind, he go out into the street and challenge the beliefs of others. And he said, people equipped with an array of di- dialectical and clinical tools who actively go into streets, prisons, bars, churches, and schools, and the community, and into any and every place the faithful reside and help them abandon their faith and embrace reason. That's, that's what his goal is in writing the book. His goal is to, to help equip people to dissuade others from their faith from what they believe in. Um, and, and, and if that sounds bothersome to you, if that sounds bad to you, it should. It should. Uh, his, his book reads like a how-to of, of, of evangelizing the faithful into atheism, into a denial of their faith, into a denial of God. And Peter Bogosian is the guy who, who wrote that. And, um, and he is absolutely active in his desire to see people abandon their faith. But he defines faith in his book, and this is where, what I think is somewhat instructive for us this morning, is to hear how he views this whole idea of what faith is. And he gives two different definitions for it. The, fir- the first definition is this, belief without evidence. And the second is pretending to know things you don't know. And so he looks at the, those who are Christians and un- other religions as well, but his focus is primarily on, on Christians. And he says, he says, those people who have faith in Jesus, who go around and, and claim to, ha- to follow him, to believe in him, are pretending to know something they don't know. Or, or perhaps they're believing something they shouldn't believe because they have zero evidence for it. Now here's what I find extremely troublesome about this whole concept is it's not just exclusive to those who are atheists. In other words, even as you begin to talk to other Christians, a lot of times what people will say faith is, is they will say, well, faith is, is kind of that blind leap of faith. If you remember the Indiana Jones, who's seen any Indiana Jones, any of the movies, right? All right, good. Good. <laughs> then this will make sense, right? There's one, I'm not even sure which movie it is, but you remember 
He's going through all these obstacles, trying to find um, whatever it is in that particular movie he's trying to find. And he comes to this big cavern that he's got to cross, and, and there's no way across it. He's, he's looking, he's, he's at the edge of a cave, and there's this big cavern, and if he takes one more step, it looks like he will fall to his certain death. And, and he's remembering this quote from whatever the clue is, and he's remembering this, and, he, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he's repeating it in his mind and, and out loud, and he starts to say it, and then, he's, and then he realizes that what this means is I've got to take a leap of faith. And so standing at, at the edge of this big cavern that if he takes one more step will certainly fall to his death, he, he, he goes, okay, I'm going to take the step. And he, and he steps back and he does, and, and it's real dramatic. It's Hollywood, right? Like it's real dramatic. You know, so he, so he closes his eyes and he just goes like this. Boom, and his foot lands. I had to make sure I was not going to fall off the edge there. <laughs> Right, and, and it lands and it hits something solid and he doesn't fall to his certain death. And then he does what any brilliant person would do. He grabs some sand and he throws it out and, he, and the sand just shows the path across that he couldn't otherwise see because it wouldn't have been smarter to throw the sand out first. <laughs> just saying. Right? That's their idea of faith. And, and even Christians sometimes have this idea that this is what faith looks like. It's this blind step. I cannot possibly have any good reason to take a step and, and trust that I'm not going to fall to my certain death. But I'm going to take the step anyway. I think that's a terrible way to view faith. It's not a biblical way to view faith. And, and we, we, as we've been looking at unlocking the secrets of the Christian life, we found out that faith was the foundation of, of the secrets, right? You have to first start with faith. And then we added to that last week, we added virtue. And this week, we're going to add knowledge. And the first thing we need to understand about knowledge is this, that faith and knowledge are not antithetical. Faith and knowledge are not antithetical. In other words, we don't have at one end, here's faith over on this side, and then knowledge over on this side, and if we're going to have knowledge, then we can't have faith. Or if we're going to have faith, then we can't have knowledge, which is sometimes what we think. We think, we, in, our, in our minds, we sometimes think, well, what it, what it means to be as Christian is to take this, this blind leap of faith without any knowledge or supporting evidence or anything to support that decision. In other words, we're just supposed to make a decision like, like we have no good reason to make it. And can I just be honest? If you're making decisions that way, we need to talk. <laughs> like, that's not how you make decisions. Faith and knowledge are not antithetical. That's my first point which should be on the screen. In reality, here's what we find. Christianity is a knowledge tradition just as much as it is a faith tradition. I actually put something on Facebook this past week. It kinda, I just made a statement, and I don't even remember what it was. I think I said something like, like uh, Christianity is a knowledge tradition, please respond, or something. And I, and I really encouraged some, some non-Christian friends to respond, which some of the Christian friends struggled with that. Like, why would you want them to respond? I must respond. And, you know, I, so I had some, some Christian friends who were, you know, trying to correct the statement and all of these different things. But here's what I found. Ironically, I found that some of my Christian friends had this idea. They, they go, no, 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 no. 
It's not a knowledge tradition. It's a faith tradition. Isn't that the whole point? And, and so they had in their mind this false dichotomy that, that you have faith on one end and knowledge on one end and that they, they aren't really supposed to work together. But ironically, or perhaps not, what we have here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, which we've been reading this verse and we're going to read it again this morning, it says this, For this very reason, make every effort, effort to supplement your faith with virtue. We talked about virtue last week. And then it says what? And virtue with what? Knowledge. In other words, we have our foundation, which is faith. And, then, and Peter says supplement, or last week I suggested we use the word furnish, right? Furnish your faith, right? Your, your foundation, you've got that. Furnish it first with virtue. And then the second thing you're supposed to furnish your faith with is knowledge. The second thing you're supposed to furnish your faith with is knowledge. Peter commends his readers to furnish their faith in this way. And, and Francis Schaeffer talks about this whole idea in his book, Escape from Reason. In this book, and it's a little book, and I'd encourage you to pick it up sometime and read it. It's not very thick. It's pretty accessible, and it's not difficult to read. And Francis Schaeffer talks about the upper story of grace and the lower story of nature. And what he suggests happens is that we have, culture develops this idea, and it has happened a few times in history, and I would suggest it's current in our culture now, that there's this lower story of things that we can know. Here's where we can acquire knowledge, and it's found in nature. In other words, we walk outside, we look at the world around us, we make observations, then we make theories perhaps about why the world works the way it does, and then we, we test those theories. And what am I talking about here? The scientific method, right? I'm talking about science. I'm talking about that thing which studies the natural world in which we live. And, we, and, and, and the culture comes along and says, this is how you acquire knowledge. You follow the scientific method, and if you can't follow the scientific method, then everything else goes on this upper story that Francis Schaeffer calls grace. And those are the things, you can't really know those things, according to culture. Culture comes and says, these are things like religion and virtue and, 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 and values and things like that. And so, and so those things are on this upper story. And you can't really acquire knowledge about some things, th- those things in any real objective way. And so we have the lower story where everybody says that's where you can acquire knowledge. And everything above that in the upper story, those are things you can't know. Which means this, that your belief, your faith isn't something you can know. It's just an opinion. It's, it's just a preference, maybe. But it's not something you can really know anything about. And of course, Francis Schaeffer says this is a, a significant and grand mistake excuse me, to approach the world this way. In other words, we end up in something called scientism. Now that's not science. Science and scientism are two different things. Science is a good thing, which came from a Christian worldview, this idea that God is a God of order who is powerful and created the world, and he gave us minds to understand and curiosity to seek to understand the world in which we live. And science comes from that kind of a foundation and studies the world that God gave us, and it's a good thing. Scientism is something else. Scientism takes science, and it makes an idol out of it. It begins to worship 
this whole idea of science. It makes, it makes the classic confusion that Paul talks about in Romans 1 where he says that, that they mistook the creator for the creation. And it begins to worship the creation instead of the creator. That's scientism. Scientism is this idea, and I've got friends who, who are very much entrenched in this, although if they heard me talk about it this way, they would look at me and say, I'm crazy. But I'm not. Well, usually. Scientism takes science and puts it on a, on, a, on a pedestal and puts it on the throne of all knowledge and says we worship science. Everything else is, is unknowable. We can't know it. J.P. Moreland, the, the, philosopher, the Christian philosopher and theologian who is very much worth reading pretty much anything he writes, uh, wrote a book about scientism. And, and, he, and he makes this distinction that many others have made as well, and it's called the fact-value distinction, right? And there, there's facts and there's values, and it's very similar to what Francis Schaeffer did. And, and, and he says this, facts, according to culture, are public and can be known through scientific inquiry and empirical evidence. Values, on the other hand, are private and cannot be known, but are a matter of opinion and are subject to cultural relativity. This is what he says in, in his book on, on this topic. He says, religious and ethical claims, this is how the world comes at them, right? Were soon understood to be merely private feelings or personal opinions. Religion and values could not provide knowledge. In fact, they were neither true nor false. This is the prevailing view outside of Christianity in the West. As a matter of fact, if you listen carefully to many of our politicians, no matter which side of the aisle they're on, they continually espouse this view. They continually talk in this way. If you listen carefully, you can hear them begin to say this. Somebody will ask them about their faith and, 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 and they will begin to, they'll start to say things like this. Well, I don't allow my personal faith to influence my political decisions. They'll say those kinds of things. In other words, the thing that should inform the way I see the entire world and everything in it and how it ought to operate, the very thing that should inform my understanding of that which is right and wrong, moral and immoral, good and evil, the thing that should inform all of that, I'm removing that from any kind of decision I will make when I start to begin to think about the policies that I will try to put in place so that people so that we will have a moral culture and i think about this and i go oh my goodness dear jesus please help us dear jesus please help us because they've made that fact value mistake they've made that upper lower story mistake they've come to this place where they want to separate the very thing that can objectively give us a foundation for what is good and right and how God created the world and why it should operate in a particular way and they remove that from the decisions that they make in the world that God himself created I hope you see the problem here this is how people outside of the Christian faith often think and sometimes and this is the problem we think this way inside the Christian faith we tend to think about the world as if there is the secular and the sacred and the two shall never touch. And can I just tell you something? God created all things sacred. 
everything that is created was created by the Holy One, the Righteous One, the All-Powerful One, the One who put all of these things into place to separate Him from it is a deeply disturbing mistake. Christianity, our faith, is as much a knowledge tradition as it is a faith tradition. As a matter of fact, if you were to look through scriptures and begin, and you can look through, read through the book of Proverbs and look at how often it talks about things that we should discern and things that we should know and seeking knowledge and wisdom. And one example of that is Proverbs chapter 15, verse 14, where it says this, the discerning heart seeks what? Knowledge or understanding. But the mouths of fools feed on folly. The, the discerning heart seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feed on folly. The Christian life is based on faith, but not only is that not contrary to knowledge, Peter says that we should furnish our faith with knowledge. When it comes to unlocking the secrets of the Christian faith, a faith that is furnished not only with virtue, but knowledge is essential. And I would say this, the Christian life requires knowledge of God, not just about God. The Christian life requires knowledge of God, not just knowledge about God. Peter opened up his letter and by telling his readers that he, he basically come and said, you have everything you need for the, for, the, for the godly life, for the holy life. You have everything you need. And he says this in verse 3, which we, we read again last week. We'll read it again this morning and, and bring something different out than we brought out last week. He says this, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our what? Knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Now this is not a, simply a knowledge about God. This is, this is not just learning about him. This is not just grabbing a systematic theology off the, off the shelf and reading it and go, wow, I know a lot about God. There's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. There are a lot of people that at least in some sense know about God. But do they know God? Our tendency is to think that maybe what, what Peter's telling us to do is, what I need to do is I need to go memorize a bunch of philosophical arguments that prove the existence of God. And, and then I need to maybe take that next step. I'm going to memorize the, some historical arguments about the Exodus and about the resurrection of Jesus and, and, and about all of these other things, these historical things that happen in, in the Old and New Testament in our scriptures so that I can know a lot about how to prove to people that God exists. That's what I need to do. I need to go do that. Then I can go out and I can hit the streets and I can prove to people that God exists because I know a lot about God. I love apologetics. I do. I, I, I read apologetics all the time. My, my MDiv has an emphasis, a concentration in apologetics and ethics. And, and like that's, I, I really, really enjoy that. Can I just be really forthright with you though? Some apologists are jerks. They just are. 
because I think they make this mistake. They know a lot about God, and I'm not calling any particular one of them out, but their attitude at least suggests that maybe they don't really know God. Or maybe for some reason they just struggle with that part uh, of their life, and that's fine because they can come across as what some people will call Jesus jerks, right? I mean, these are the guys that jump on social media, and they're like blasting everybody with all their arguments. And, and their whole goal is just to prove the other person that they're right. And they know a lot of really great philosophical arguments, and they can come up with all kinds of anecdotal evidence and examples and, and things like that. But their tone lacks what Peter tells us to have, which is gentleness and kindness when we present answers. Knowledge about God is not the same as knowledge of God. That is to say you can have knowledge of God without knowing, or you, that is not to say that you can have knowledge of God without knowing about God, but just to say that they are not the same thing. In John chapter 15, verses 13 and 14, Jesus speaks in a particular way. As he's talking to his disciples, he says, Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And then he says, You are my friends if you do what I command. Jesus speaks of friendship. Not just assenting to some sort of belief intellectually. He talks about a relational situation. You know, I was thinking about this, and, and, and I, think, I, I was thinking, this is kind of like how my perception anyways of how people, some people date today. And this is, the dating's changed over the years, and it's been many, many years since I have dated other than my wife. I date my wife sometimes. I, I love my wife. I date her. But other than my wife, it's been many, many years. It's been, you know, since I've dated anyone other than her, I don't even know. I'd have to go back and think, like 28 years or something like that. Is that right? 20. We've been married for 26 years, going on 27. So it's been way beyond that anyways, all right? So I don't want to get myself in trouble. I feel like I'm just digging a hole. <laughs> Somebody help me. But, you know, now they have all these dating apps, right? You download an app, and, and, and I don't, I'm not sure which is which, like swipe left or right. I don't know which ones mean yes or no or whatever. But there's this idea, and, and it's kind of the e-harmony taken to a next another level, right? And so there's these apps and people go on and they can look at a person's profile and, 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 and they can maybe, they, maybe they see a picture. They go, oh, they were born this year and they went to that school. They grew up in this part of the world and, 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 and they like to do this with their free time and, and, and they, they went to this college and got that degree and they're in this career. And you can read their profile, presumably, and get all of this information about them. But it's, Interesting to note, I think, as far as I know, people don't just go from like, when you swipe left or right or whichever direction you swipe for yes, that's not a commitment to marriage, right? That's a commitment to, oh yeah, let's talk or something. I don't know if they message each other. I don't know how that works. But whatever they do, they talk to each other and then they get to know each other, right? And then they go and maybe, maybe they go and they meet each other at a coffee shop or something like that and they have coffee and then they decide, well, maybe we've had coffee, we kind of like each other now, right? Maybe we'll take that next step. Now we're going to go and we're going to actually have dinner and, 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 and it builds and it grows because knowing about the person was not sufficient to making the decision to now I'm going to marry you. In other words, there had to be more done, didn't there? In the same way, when we, when we 
encounter God, we can know a lot about God, but unless we make that decision to engage in a relationship with him, we don't really know him. We have to do more than just know about God. We have to engage with God. Begin to to use that language of friendship that Jesus used and, and understand that God is... His desire is to be in a loving relationship with us. He loved us in this that he gave his son. And what he wants back is for us to love him in return, to be in relationship with him. Knowledge of God consists of knowledge about God combined with engagement with God. It's a both and proposition. Knowledge of God comes when we seek to know God. Knowledge of God comes when we seek to know God. I was reading Psalm 119 not long ago, and I want to go through several of these verses because of the language that is used in Psalm 119 is about the law of God, but but it's interesting the way the language is is presented in verse 2, it says this, in Psalm 119, verse 2, it says, Blessed are those who keep his statutes. Now listen to this next phrase. And seek him with all their heart. And seek him with all their heart. Verse 7, if you jump down to verse 7, it says, I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. There's a praise with an upright heart. That's, it's, it's, it's relational in tone. You jump down to verse 9 and it says, How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. The very next verse, I seek you with all my heart. That idea of I'm, I'm out seeking you. I'm longing after you. Verse 20. My, cons- my soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. Verse 27, cause me to understand the way of your precepts that I meditate on your wonderful deeds. Verse 58, I have sought your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. And if you were to go back, and Psalm 119 is one of the longer psalms, and if you were to go back and you were to, to read it and to hear the passion in the psalm, uh, of the psalmist and, and wanting to know God, and he knows him through his commandments, right? That's part of how we know him. Part of how we know God is we pick up the revealed word of God and we spend time in it. But we need to understand that just reading it isn't sufficient, We can memorize all the verses we want. Bart Ehrman is one of the foremost skeptics that who argues against the Christian faith. He's an an atheist. He grew up under under Christian teaching and not just in a church, but he went to college and then he went to university and then he got his PhD under under people who truly loved God and loved his word. And he's one one of the best known New Testament scholars of our time, and he's an atheist. He knows more about the Bible and its original manuscripts and the original language than I will ever know in some ways. But he doesn't know the God of the Bible. There's a difference between knowing about God and being in 
relationship with God. But knowing about God is part of it. Right? If you can't, I, I, I married my wife and I think I knew some things about her. It would have been unwise for me to not know anything about her and to marry her. I would have just gotten extremely lucky in that case. I still got extremely lucky. But it was an informed luck. All right? I knew some things about her. The luck was convincing her to be foolish enough to marry me. And guys, that's how you score points right there. I need to know about God. I need to pick up his revealed word, which tells us about him. I need to know about him. But in the process, I I need to not lose sight of the relational aspect of what it is to know God. And as you read scripture and you read the psalmist, you begin to see that that psalmist, and not just in Psalm 119, but throughout all of the psalms and many other places in scriptures, and really throughout all of scriptures, there is a passion and a desire, a seeking. Jesus even talks about it in, in Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount when he, when, he, when he says, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Christianity is a faith tradition and a knowledge tradition. This week's secret of the Christian faith is this. You ready? Here it goes. Faith in God furnished with knowledge of of God informs the Christian life. Faith in God furnished with, with knowledge of God informs the Christian life. When we begin to understand and to know the heart and the mind of God and we live in the world he created, even if it is fallen, it informs how we live from moment to moment, day by day, as we make decisions about all of the things that we have to make decisions about in life. If we, if we are in relationship with him, if we not only know about him, but we know him relationally, then we can engage the world that he created in a good and godly and Christian way. Faith in God, furnished with knowledge of God, informs the Christian life. J.I. Packer wrote a wonderful book called Knowing God. And in that book, he says this. He says, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Now, here's, here's what that does not say. Here's what J.I. Packer is not saying. He's not saying you will not have problems. That is not in there. Did you see that? I didn't see that. He says these problems, these issues that you face will fall into the place of their own accord. In other words, when we begin to encounter the problems of the fallen world we live in, the the Christian faith gives us the knowledge and the understanding to put everything in its place. And we begin to realize that the world that we live in is fallen and that helps us understand why there's problems, why there's difficulties, why these things are hard, why there's hurt, why there's sorrow, why there's bad decisions, why there's suffering. We can understand all of these things and we can put them into their place, understanding that our role in all this is to be in a loving relationship with God. 
And when we understand that, these other things can fall into place. In other words, we have been given the tools to understand them and to manage them and to address them because we have the right and good understanding of the way the world works because we have a right and good understanding of the heart and the mind of the Creator. Even the worst problems are nothing, as Paul once said, compared to the glory of God. That's a paraphrase, of course. But Packer goes on, and just a little bit later, he says this. What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. Think about it this way. The world comes along and we live we live in an area that is about 93% unchurched. I think I mentioned that last week. And the world comes along and, and those outside of this Christian worldview, they look at the world and they, and, and they think, what am I here for? And the answer, the answer is usually flat. It lacks passion. It lacks anything really significant. To make the world a better place, of course, a better place based on who? Who gets to decide what better is? Then you run into all kinds of problems. Maybe they go, I'm here because I need to fulfill my own desires. And maybe their own desire is, man, I just want to have money and and travel and, and live in a big house or whatever. And, and it's a materialistic kind of approach. And, and who's to tell them they're wrong, by the way? But can I just tell you, everybody, he who t- dies with the most toys still dies? I mean, I just want you to think about that. Maybe they, maybe they come along and they go, well, I'm going to latch myself onto this cause. In my lifetime, I am going to solve poverty. That's a, that's a good goal. But can I just tell you something? You're not going to until Jesus comes again. The poor will always be with you because we live in a fallen world. The problem with poverty is not that we have a lack of resources in the world. The problem with poverty is that we have a human problem, a sin problem. We have governments. When we give to the governments, it doesn't get to the people. Even in our own society, we have a a poverty problem because we have drug problems and and, and mental health problems and and all kinds of other problems, and it it influences our society. In other words, as long as we live in a fallen world where sin has infected the human race, we will have poverty. doesn't mean we shouldn't fight it. I'm just trying to help you understand that our goal is so much bigger. It's beyond this world. We cannot reach it if we're focused on this world. There's something beyond this. There is a new heavens and there is a new earth and there will be no poverty there, by the way. That's where our hope is. So we think about what is the secret, unlocking the secret of the Christian faith. Furnish your faith with knowledge, not just about but of God. Amen? Let's pray. Dear God, you are so big. You are so amazing. You're so beautiful. 
You are so 